when you work on gender equity, you look at women as women. You look at people as people. You look at their independence. You look at their strength. You look at their ability and willingness to contribute to the society. You look at their rights. You look at other things. You don't just look at women as victims or potential victims. The same as you don't look at men as only perpetrators or potential perpetrators. And you don't look at gender-based violence as a women issue. You look at it as a social issue and you look at gender as a social issue. Hi, and welcome to Deviates, a podcast series brought to you from the Global International Development Program at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Global translates academic research into a practical understanding of community development, an approach empowering communities in need across the world to prosper and succeed. I am Chagit Kakovcherny, a humanitarian professional and a global alumni, and we are here to talk about development work through current events and case studies, exploring the most pressing challenges and questions the field holds. Today we're going to speak about gender equality. We're going to talk about gaps, social behavior, and the role of the community versus the role of the international development sector. From birth, women and men are expected to play a specific role based on culture, religion, and other beliefs. These behaviors are learned and internalized and shape the norms in society. But how should we look at those different perceptions when working with communities around the world? Unfortunately, gender norms create harmful disadvantages for women and men in areas of education, employability, health, human rights, and so much more. How can we influence positive change to achieve gender equality? Here are some facts taken from the United Nations, the World Health Organization, and the World Economic Forum to better understand the problem. Sixteen million girls between the ages of six and eleven will never start school. This is double the number of boys due to social restrictions. Globally, over six hundred and fifty million. 20% of women and girls around the world were married before their 18th birthday. According to statistics taken from 156 countries, women globally earn 37% less than men in similar roles. 120 million girls around the world have experienced sexual violence. Due to gender socialization of masculinity, the rate of homicide is four times higher among adolescents boys aged 10 to 19 than among girls at the same age. Women are 47% more likely to suffer severe injuries and car crashes because safety features are designed for men. Only six countries give women equal legal work rights as men, from receiving a pension to freedom of movement, influencing economic decisions women make during their careers. And a study from the University of California, Berkeley, and the University of Chicago, led by Professor Zucker, found that women are more likely than men to suffer adverse side effects of medications because drug doses have historically been based on clinical trials conducted on men. We have talked with three remarkable professionals. With Akuja Madding de Garange awarded MBE, T. 
team leader for girls education in South Sudan with Mott McDonald and Cambridge Education, Dorit Rubin, a psychotherapist specializing in psychodrama and focused dynamic therapy. Also, the protection technical advisor for Israel's Africa Desk. And with Dr. Amy Rosenberg-Weinreb, a lecturer at Global for Gender and Development and Qualitative Research Methods. Amy, how would you define gender? Um, when I was first taught um, gender, right on the board, the instructor would say, okay, we have sex first. This is not the same as gender. Sex is your chromosomes, your hormones, your genitals, and your secondary sex characteristics like breasts or Adam's apple or other parts of your body that would develop biologically, purely biological, that's a separate category. And then gender, you know, it was, it was said it's the socially constructed, culturally learned and culturally transmitted behaviors, attitudes, performances, ideologies, and anything else that's not biological. Gender is not deterministic. And it's it's not deterministic at an individual level. And at cultural level, we can talk about gender norms, gender stereotypes, and gender roles, but those aren't fixed either. As Amy explains, men and women face different expectations and limitations about how they should dress, behave, or work. Relations between men and women, whether in the family, workplace, or the public sphere, also reflect understandings of capacities, characteristics, and behavior appropriate. Orit, you've been working since 2006 in Israel, Chad, Serbia, Liberia, and South Sudan on topics of gender equity and gender-based violence. From your experience, how do people, specifically men, relate to the topic? I work mostly in more traditional communities. And I do have to say, I have found this to be surprisingly welcomed. A lot of the work is done in South Sudan, which is a very traditional community that has a very, very high prevalence of gender-based violence. But I do have to say, I, we have never encountered community leaders, traditional leaders who were against the idea of gender equity, at least, at least against the idea of um, safety, reducing gender-based violence. Akuja, you've been working in the sector of conflict management, humanitarian and development work for the past 15 years. And since 2013, you've been leading a team of approximately 300 national and international professionals working nationwide to tackle barriers to girls' education in South Sudan. From your experience, what argument helps best to convey the message that gender has an effect on all of us, especially when discussing education? Do a calculation, a simple calculation. For example, you know, I'm sure you're aware of read articles about the cost of not educating girls or the cost of violence against women. So costing, in a way, for me, is an interesting concept because I think money speaks, unfortunately. And, and, and for officials who are kind of stakeholders, the decision makers to understand that costing, you know, um, uh, development and the fact that if you leave one or the other behind, what that will look like economically for your country, we disassociate um, uh, issues that don't necessarily impact us as individuals and, and think that this is something that's affecting someone else. So I think making that a reality for every single person at all levels and make that, you know, if you don't do A, B and C in terms of making gender equity and equality a reality, this is the 
um, impact with. I think second, I would say that human beings are human beings and, and we naturally tend to become defensive if we think something or someone is encroaching in our space. And I think that needs to be an understanding that we all have to recognize that uh, gender equity or equality does not necessarily threaten any of us. But if we talk about gender pay gap, for example, some would imagine that by paying women the same, that means you're taking money away from men. But if we are able to kind of bring that and, and, and make people realize like it does not necessarily threaten your position, whether you're male or female, by ensuring that both of us are, you know, um, uh, uh, paid according to the effort that we make. Uh, we are recruited or, or, or um, uh, um, given employment based on all of, you know, kind of the capacity that we can, we can deliver, our, our skills and so forth. When focusing on the education system, according to the Sustainable Development Goals, we do see there has been a major progress in increasing access to education, and although the gaps are still inconceivable, we do see higher enrollment rates to schools, especially by girls. But what is still missing in the conversation? Well, personally, um, I, I feel it is a, a lot needs to be done. We've, we've made in terms of quite a bit of contribution to uh, bringing forward um, a change. And, you know, we're talking here about numbers and I know this is not enough in the work that I do in, in bringing uh, girls up to par in terms of education with boys is progressing. And we do see that happening in terms of numbers, but we do know that there is still quite a bit of, 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 of work to be done for change to be sustained. It needs to be constant. It takes time for people to change their thinking, to change their behavior and to change their practice. So there's a lot to be done in that area. Um, I also feel that uh, there is definitely conversation that needs to be had um, in the sense that uh, how do we bring uh, boys in a conversation that is that they feel they're part of the solution as well, um, not necessarily being uh, uh, fingers being pointed at them as being the culprits um, uh, of any particular uh, negative examples, but I think projecting that uh, positively and, and showing boys and men how they can positively contribute. So I do see the struggles among my family members, my friends, the same struggles I see in, in the communities that I work in, it's not that different. And where people are feeling that, uh, well, uh, as a program, you talk about girls' education, you focus on, on, on girls, what about the boys? And how do we have that conversation in a way that, yes, we understand the reason why we started off discussing or focusing on girls. However, we do feel that uh, at a personal level and at a professional level, I feel that it, it, is, it is high time to, to bring uh, boys along. And I, I believe that gender within education is an important um, area to, to discuss, but take that a step further and look at it from, okay, what does that actually mean? If, if, if yes, we have, if today we have equal number of boys and girls in school, what does that mean? Are they learning effectively in terms of being learners in, in the classroom? Is the classroom, are the classrooms enabled in a way that can, you know, um, help both, both you know, the, the, the boys and the girls learn effectively? Are they conducive? Are the teachers there in, you know, and are they aware that there is perhaps some difference, but also some similarities in how girls and boys perhaps learn? 
uh, but also kind of the structural kind of maybe barriers that affect boys and, and girls differently um, and how are those being addressed for that to kind of move to the next stage where if you talk about ensuring that yes uh, at home you know um, you know uh, a son and a, and a daughter are given the same opportunity to do their homework simply uh, rather than you know imposing for example the housework on onto girls and so forth um, there's a lot that I feel education can bring forward um, for for uh, for us as 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 community members as um, as stakeholders in this to be able to make uh, the informed decisions that uh, we we think should be happening. Orita Nakuja, from your various experiences, you've seen hands-on. In order to reach sustainable change and acceptance, processes have to be led by the community and local professionals. So, what in fact is the role of the international development sector here? And how can it provide support coming as externals? I think that is the question, right? It's, it's the most uh, um, important and, and challenging question. And that is, how do you promote something from outside? And should you promote something from outside? Right. And is it for you to promote? Is it for you even to choose or to think what is right and what is wrong? And, and I think that... The answer starts with reminding ourselves to ask ourselves those questions constantly and to come with caution and to come with respect in, in a few levels. First, the, the problem with international interventions, I think, with, is that it's very donor-oriented and therefore we, have, we, we are expected to have very specific objectives and very specific timeframes. And we have slots, you know, specific time slots to, to re, re achieve certain goals. The problem with social change, attitudes, practices, norms, values. Um, behavior. Behavior, absolutely. Practices, behavior. These are things that have to mature on their own and in their own direction. And this is, it's very, very, very difficult. I don't have the answer, but I think that understanding the complexity is the first step to start looking for the answers. But so then there's a collide, there's a clash between the demands of the international world, international interventions, and the type of quality long-term process that communities can and should hold. Even just think we're coming as a, with a program to a community and we're coming with objectives that we have decided on and, and submitted to our donors, right? And we're approved. And these are the objectives that we have now to achieve. But what about the community's objectives and what about their decisions? And not to mention their pace, of course. Definitely something that we have to consider and to be very much aware of and to allow us this time especially especially if we work on such complex issues uh, that are so embedded in culture and society. And also this would be very condescending for any of us, doesn't matter what culture you come from, what community you come from. There is not one of us that comes from a culture or a community that can definitely say, oh, we are there. We have found the solution. We, have, we are all struggling to, to a point. And it would be very condescending and very uh, patronizing to come to a different society and say, we know where you should go and we'll lead you, we'll lead the way. It has to be owned and led by the society, by the community. And I think that the more you strengthen the community 
and you work on community cohesiveness and you work on community resilience and you work uh, to, to help them find their own way to be stronger, then they can start identifying their gaps and work kind of to start bridge those gaps uh, with the hope and faith that it will also identify gender issues and gender-based violence issues as a priority. You know, localizing this conversation and really bringing people who look like the people who you want to uh, interact with uh, in the communities that you want to affect change in. Um, people generally relate, I think on one hand, I think it has its pros and cons, I have to admit. But sometimes when you're speaking to someone or someone who looks like you or, or is from the context that you're from, um, uh, is speaking about an issue, people tend to be sometimes receptive. You know, I'll speak for the context of South Sudan where they think, ah, you know, this gender issue, this is sort of a Western idea, a foreign idea, we don't have this. But then when you think about many of the communities and the cultures in South Sudan, actually the issue around um, gender, although it's not called gender necessarily, there are other terminologies for it. There's a lot of, of, of the, the tradition and cultures that respect both male and women, so using those examples that are context relevant uh, by a person who is from the context, I think, uh, brings um, uh, a bit of a kind of a, maybe less of a resistance, I would say. You speak a lot about the community as the force of change. When you look at the SDGs, it is very difficult to find the word community. You see government, you see infrastructure. Should the international sector be focusing more on government legislation and policy and leave the community work to community experts? It's not for no reason that community is not there because usually we look and we say, okay, community, but you go out to the world and what is a community? Where do you find it? Who is community? Who do you talk to? Who is there? Is there a shape? Is there a person? Is there a place? What is that? It's a very vague concept. And many times what you need to do is to start learning and identifying what is that community because communities vary, you know, you'll never find the same thing. That's so that is what makes communities so unique. It's it's really taking the time to, to understand and to learn. Uh, and and for that, I, I want to kind of raise the thought of, of starting with identifying those transformative potential. You know, what, what, where is the transformative potential in the community? And, that, and there you will start identifying individuals, you will start identifying structures, you will start identifying councils, groups, different roles and positions. And, and, and there you see where the transformative potential can be. We didn't talk about strengths and resources, which is extremely important when we talk about individuals and groups and communities. So to identify this, but also to identify the challenges and the problems and gaps, and then to have this awareness and motivation to start working on it. And, and, and this is where the transformation or change can start. And then you also want to look at the political structures, right? So uh, governmental, political leadership, for formal, non-formal structures, you want to identify them and you want to start communicating with them. We're talking actually about protection. And in protection, a large portion of protection is human rights, right? And that also includes legislation, uh, which is extremely important. You know, if, if people live in a society under a government or that does not identify issues of gender-based violence as inappropriate and unacceptable, 
then then there's nobody to protect them. So even if they recognize that this is not something they would like in their own personal lives and in their own communities, they're very restricted in what they can do about it. But if we only work on, on legislation and the government level, the legal level, and we're not working with, with the people themselves and law has changed, basically all we're achieving is, is announcing large portions of the community as outlaws because we didn't work with them to identify alternatives and to practice. We'd want the three layers. You would like the laws and regulations. You would like the attitudes and values and practices to become more women, uh, I don't know, friendly or sensitive. And you would like to have appropriate services to respond when, there, when needs uh, occur, when, when incidents occur. There is no single answer to how we can close the gender gap and create an equal world for both men and women. However, we can better understand what the process should entail, and it will take a long-term investment. Gender equality is a win-win situation. By marginalizing the rights of women, we deny ourselves the opportunity to lift millions of men, women, and children out of poverty. This has a huge impact on countries' economic structures and capacity. Also, gender has to be mainstreamed in every project design and budget building, or like Akuja says it, Perhaps uh, looking at it as a way of no, not necessarily using just the kind of the, the, the buzzwords of mainstreaming, but what does mainstreaming actually mean? And, and, and when we talk about mainstreaming, are we, are we looking at this from the perspective of, uh, again, going to the kind of the, the point that I made about are we ticking boxes or are we actually making changes? What are the practical changes that we can make? Uh, for example, if you're budgeting for any particular, even if it's a, a, a water project um, or a um, construction project, what is it within that project? Can, you know, what budget within your project can you allocate to address issues of gender? And I think making that a reality and making that practical in terms of how we plan and budget for our programs is really, really important. And ensure like at least maybe two, three, five percent of your budget should be allocated for addressing issues to ensure that gender equity and equality is addressed effectively. Gender has to be presented in a way that both men and women can identify with. It needs to be taught and practiced so people can internalize it. It is not a women's issue, it's society's issue. And eventually, the long-term impact will come from the community. And the international sector needs to provide the technical support and resources, shifting the power back to the professional local community. Returning back to you, Akuja, gender equality is a life mission, as we know. Can you maybe please share with us towards the end what keeps you up at night and what should keep us up at night regarding gender equity? Oh, wow. <laughs> Um, one thing that definitely keeps me keep me up in light is the fate of young women, young girls. Sometimes there is a lot that fall between the cracks. And a lot that falls between the cracks means that we're not paying attention to some of the perhaps um, unfortunate things that are happening in, in some communities in terms of how we are able to, to protect uh, those who are, are vulnerable been quite a number of cases of gender-based violence that have, have really been horrific. And when you speak to, say, the guardians of these young girls and young women and children, 
they would explain to you and say, oh, well, I was out or I was busy trying to put food on the table. So how can we really, if, 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 we're, if we're sitting here, if I am sitting in my office, whereby I talk and able to eloquently express myself here, when there's next door, there's a young girl who is potentially being put at risk because her mother is sitting outside the gate selling, I don't know, tea or something to make a living. This for me, uh, just completely keeps me up at night. I think that would be the word. How, how can we make that in a reality and practical? But the reality is that there are a lot of mothers and fathers who would want to make that a reality to be able to protect their children, whether it's boys or girls, but are not equipped or just life opportunities don't give them that to be able to provide for their children of, of both genders equally or, or protect them equally.